pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, as you get yourself settled there, if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Romans chapter 16, we're going to be in the last chapter of Romans. We have, we've made it to the last chapter. Okay. Someone, at, someone in my small group who shall remain nameless on Wednesday night said, well, we've been in Romans for like a year. We have been. Uh, we're almost to the end of it. Um, as you get settled there, uh, I just want to take a... A minute here. The third Sunday in January, you, uh, you may or may not be aware, uh, churches, organizations across the nation pause in order to recognize and affirm the sanctity of human life. And uh, we want to we wanna join in with that. If you noticed in your bulletin this morning, you've got a, uh, an insert there from Liberty Women's Clinic, which is an organization that we partnership uh, in ministry with here in the Northland. Uh, humanity over, you know, you, you can go all the way back to Cain and Abel to see that humanity has, has struggled with truly upholding the sanctity of all human life. And um, that begins at conception in the womb, and it continues all the way uh, till a person passes. And we believe that's the case for all individuals. And so as organizations and groups nationwide lend their voice to affirming the sanctity of human life, we want to do that here. Um, particularly on this Sunday, we uh, direct attention to uh, the issue of abortion, and uh, we give our, our vocal uh, assent to the fact that um, we believe abortion to be murder. And so that uh, insert that you have in your bulletin from Liberty Women's Clinic, that is an opportunity where if you want to, if you're looking for a way to tangibly be involved in supporting uh, the sanctity of human life, that's an organization that we partner with and we trust. You can volunteer your time there, obviously. You can go to their website and see different ways that they encourage people to give in support um, of offering abortion alternatives, safe abortion alternatives to women and families here in the Northland. We encourage you to, uh, to take part in that if the Lord leaves it on your heart. Uh, they're a wonderful organization that's doing great work here in the Northland. And so I want to take a minute and just spend some time in prayer, and then we'll jump into Romans 16. Uh, God, thank you for this morning, for the chance to come and to worship, to gather, get, gather together as a church family and celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. God, we also want to pray specifically. Um, God, would you lay it heavy in our hearts, in the hearts of the big C church across this nation to uphold the sanctity of human life in all phases and all forms, beginning at conception and continuing all the way through to death. God, and would we champion that in all of its forms and in all of its fashions throughout all phases of life? God, and would that ripple outward from the church as those who understand how it is that you infinitely love and intricately make each and every human being? God, would we live with that in view? Would we give lend our voices to that? God, would we lend our time and our energies to supporting initiatives or organizations or programs that uphold the sanctity of human life. God, I pray that you would build within us a vision that sees just the true value and meaning of life uh, from conception to death. And God, would that ripple outward from the church and take hold in our society as a whole, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'll just 
uh, direct your attention here, just visually look at what you have in Romans chapter 16. It might be, uh, depending on how your Bible translation lays this out, it could be one large paragraph or it could be split out into almost like single sentences. But what you'll see is a long list of names. And over the Christmas season, we looked at another list of names. We looked at the genealogy of Jesus. And what we saw is that these lists of names where they're contained in the Bible are a lot more than just, in this case, greetings, or in the case in Matthew, they're more than just a lineage. There's something that we can take out of these. There's a a famous line that comes from one of Mark Twain's lesser-known novels. He wrote it in 1892. It's called The American Claimant. And in it, One of his characters, Mulberry Sanders, proclaims, there's gold in them there hills. You are maybe familiar with that line. I was, but I had no idea where it came from. It comes from Mark Twain and one of his characters. The actual quote is from a man named M.F. Stevenson. And it was actually about an area in Georgia that he thought contained enough gold that people didn't need to run out west to California, that there was gold in these hills in Georgia that they could find for themselves. I want to say to you this morning, there's gold in these names. Chrysostom, a 8th century Christian theologian, says it this way, I think that even of those who have the appearance of being extremely godly men, they hasten over this part of the epistle as superfluous. But it is possible even from bare names to find a great treasure. The list of names in the Bible, if they're given some thought and some reflection, they offer us great and precious truths. As Chrysostom says, they offer us great treasure. In the case of Romans 16, that treasure is going to be similar to what we saw last week. When we ended Romans chapter 15, we saw this kind of inner look, the anatomy of this mission-driven part, a heart that Paul has to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel. We saw that that heart directs all attention to Christ, that it maintains a vision for the lost, that it depends on the Lord in prayer. This morning, we're going to get an inside look at a disciple-making heart. Making disciples is the fifth of kind of the phrases or the attributes that here at LCF we say make a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, that we're mission-driven, humbly unified, pursuing holiness, um, gospel-centered, that's the top one, and then we're disciple-making. And so what does that mean? What does it look like? One of the things that I think often happens is that within the church, we think there's evangelism and then there's discipleship. And those two things are in like contrast to one another, that you either do missions and you do evangelism, or you've got a passion and a heart to do discipleship, but you really can't do both. You've got to center on one or the other. Now, what I want to offer this morning and going forward over the next few weeks is that those two things work in complement, not in competition. That it's the calling of every follower of Jesus to have an eye toward the nations with the gospel, an eye toward the lost, but it's also the responsibility of every believer to have an eye toward the building up of individuals so that they might go and live the gospel and share the gospel. Evangelism and discipleship, not in competition, but in complement to one another. So this is what we're going to see this morning, that a disciple-making heart invests in individuals, offers protective encouragement, and has multiplication in view. Let's read the first 16 verses of Romans 16. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matters she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. 
Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert of Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Astrobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Trophina and Trophosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncresis, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. I've been worried about that list of names since we started this series. <laughs> we, we started in Romans 1.1, and I thought to myself, I'm going to have to read those and pronounce them correctly. feels good to have that behind me. These first 16 verses, let me, let's start with kind of the first of that phrase that's up there, that a disciple-making heart invests in individuals. Some broad kind of basics about this list. There are 27 names listed. It starts with Phoebe, and then there are 26 others. 24 of them are named explicitly. Two of them are named as a relative, someone's mother, someone's sister. And the list highlights the incredible diversity that was present within the Roman church. It's racially, nationally, ethnically diverse. Some of the names here are Roman. Some of them are not. Some of the names here are Jewish. Some of them are Gentile. One of the names, Eponidas, we're told, he was the first convert in Asia. So he's of an Asian background. Socially, they come from different ranks or statuses within society. Inscriptions from the time reveal that Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus, and Julia were common names for household servants. On the other end of the spectrum is Aristobulus, who is commonly thought to be the grandson of Herod the Great and a close friend of the Roman Emperor Claudius. Phoebe's listed as a benefactor, which just means that she was really wealthy and she financially supported the growth of the church. There's gender difference. Ten of the names are female. Phoebe, Prisca, uh, Mary, Junia, Trophina, Trophosa, Persis, Rufus's mother, Julia, Nerus's sister. Let me just give a brief observation here. Paul oftentimes will get a bad rap because he's, some will say he's like a chauvinist or he's a misogynist. And the truth is that when you read his epistles, women play a key role in his ministry. In fact, when he speaks about women and their role or when he lists them like here, he's often recognizing and affirming their role rather than criticizing their role. And I think that's important to point out. There's notoriety difference among these names. Some of them are well-known. Others we know virtually nothing about. Rufus is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. He was the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross to Golgotha. Prisca and Aquila are mentioned in other places. We're more commonly uh, used to hearing it as Priscilla and Aquila. They were traveling companions with Paul. Meanwhile, all we know about Andronicus and Junia is that they spent time in prison with Paul, and we know virtually nothing about the last nine names or so that are listed. The group is incredibly diverse. Paul's been prodding them toward unity, but don't miss kind of the big overriding reality here. Paul names them. You know the names of the people you care about. 
You know the names of the people that you love. You don't forget those that you've invested in. Paul is undoubtedly one of the greatest theological minds that's ever lived and has ever walked on planet Earth, and yet his heart was both for the masses and it was also for the individual. He was driven by the mission of the gospel to the multitudes of unreached people all the way to the ends of the earth, and yet he was tender and loving and caring to disciple individuals. Kenan Vaughn, who runs a discipleship training program called Downline, expresses it this way. He said that Jesus set the model and Paul carried on the example of seeing the masses through the man and building the man to reach the masses. That's how evangelism and discipleship work together. You see the masses, the unreached and the unengaged and the unsaved people, the world over, and yet you also see the individuals who live right around you. And you build in and you invest and you uh, instill the truths of the gospel in those who are right there with you as you have an eye toward the nations. You might not ever go to the nations, but this person that you're discipling might. And so you instill the truth of the gospel in individuals. What's it mean to actually invest in individuals? Let me give you a short list. This is by no means exhaustive. We're going to talk more about what disciple-making actually means and looks like over the next couple of weeks. But let's start here with what we can just pull out of these 16 verses. The first is that it means that you're a champion. Imagine getting a letter from Paul. You're in Rome. You've never met Paul. You've heard about Paul because other people have talked about him. You've heard about this apostle who's been traveling and sharing the gospel, but you've never met him. He's never met you. And then he lists your name personally. And he gives a qualifier to you, like noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. Or he says something like, they've worked very hard for you. They're a co-laborer in Christ. I love the way Paul does this for two of the names in particular. Trophina and Trophosa, if you translate those, that means dainty or delicate. If you look at verse 12, greet Trophina and Trophosa, greet dainty and delicate who have worked hard in the Lord. That worked hard literally translates to they've exhausted themselves. They've spent themselves. They're not dainty and delicate. That might be what their names mean, but they have worked hard in the Lord. He's championed for them. Part of what it is to be a disciple maker, part of what it is to disciple someone is to be the champion in their corner. You know their life. You know their work. You know their struggles. You know their season of life. You know the way that it is that they've wrestled and stumbled forward as they've attempted to follow Jesus. And they don't have to toot their own horn because you're leading the band on their behalf. You are the champion for them. Look at who this person is. One of my best friends from college, his name is Danny. We spent some time when we were in college uh, running, uh, leading this high school Bible study for students who went to Columbia Rockbridge and Columbia Hickman. And uh, I mean, it was a little bit like the blind leading the blind. We didn't really know anything. We barely knew these kids. And man, they were terrible. I mean, they were just like, oh, most weeks I, you wanted to like, you were just trying not to harm one of them before they left the house. And so... They're just squirrely individuals. And we had one kid in particular who, he, he came through the Bible study, then he went to school at Mizzou, so the discipleship relationship kind of shifted from Bible study and student, it kind of morphed into this like peer sort of thing where Danny and this guy are living alongside each other, and then Danny graduates and he goes and gets a job, and he hires that kid in this uh, ministry to work with him. Now that kid is a man with a family who's picked up a master's, and he's working on a PhD. And Danny's like the biggest champion for him. 
A lot of people would have wrote him off. He was, oh, he was squirreling. He was out there and like getting him to focus on anything was impossible. And now he's this just, just incredible servant for the Lord and Danny's champion. A disciple maker is a champion. A disciple maker is also a cheerleader. To have a heart for making disciples mean that you, means that you do more than just give away or distill knowledge and Bible facts. It means that you're in it with that person, that you're invested alongside them, that you're cheering them on. Paul says that he was fellow prisoners with two of these individuals. Multiple times he lists someone as a co-worker with him. As a disciple maker who's seeing individuals and championing them, you're also rolling up your sleeves. You're living alongside them, serving alongside them. You're growing together, sharing the gospel alongside one another, preaching the gospel to each other. You're not just walking into the same small group once a week. You're not just kind of passively sitting in the same service as one another. You're invested alongside them. If you're the discipler, it means you're giving a model for what it looks like to pursue the Lord, but you're also close enough to them that they see genuinely what it looks like as you're kind of fumbling your way forward at times, figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus, and you're inviting someone close enough in so that they can see that in you, and you can see it and cheer it on in them. It also means that you're a challenger. All of this at the end of Romans, these first 16 verses of Romans 16, come in a much broader context. Anytime we look at any single passage of Scripture, we always are doing so in light of everything else that's around it. And so when we get to Romans 16, we can't forget Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15. Paul's been challenging them. What does it look like to be the church? How are they supposed to use their gifts with one another? How are they supposed to serve one another? How do they love one another? How should they be deferring to one another. There have been strong challenges from Paul. The heart of a disciple maker isn't to merely puff up those we are discipling. Sometimes there needs to be a strong word of encouragement. Sometimes a difficult truth needs to be spoken in love. Sometimes a rebuke needs to be given. At times, we'll need to lovingly point out sin. When we see individuals and share their lives with them, we're bound to see both the good, the way that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and molding them into Christ, but we're also bound to see the not so good, the places where sin is rearing its head. The good we celebrate, we champion, we cheerlead. The not so good, the outright sinful, the broken places, we gently and lovingly and yet firmly challenge with the truth of Scripture. Note one more thing here. If Paul's letter writing uh, campaign all throughout the New Testament displays anything to us, it's that he didn't abandon those who started to struggle. In Galatians, there's this wrestling with the law. Paul writes him a letter and challenges him. He doesn't just walk away. In Corinthians, there are issues with taking communion and marriage and purity and sexuality. There's issues with the usage of gifts and the way that their church services were operating. And so Paul hangs with them, writes him a letter. This is what it looks like. He challenges them. He doesn't just uproot and abandon them. In Romans, he's talked a lot about unity and the way it is that the church should come together despite this incredibly diverse body. Sometimes we've got to be a challenger. I want to give an image to associate with each of these three parts this morning. And the image I want to give you this morning is the image of a coach. Thank Andy Reid, right? I wanted to work in a whole lot of Pat Mahomes illustrations this morning, uh, but I couldn't come up with any. And so you're, <laughs> that fit logically. And so you're getting an Andy Reid illustration. 
sometimes you'll see the, the moment after a game where a team's lost and the coach steps up to the podium and maybe it was a, a difficult loss or, or whatever the case might be and the coach gets up there and he gives some sort of impassioned like, these are, these are my guys and I wouldn't take anybody else's guys. That's coach speak for we got our tails whipped, but this is who I'm with and I'm their champion and I'm gonna stand up here and beat the drum on their behalf because these are my people. That's what it is to be a disciple maker. These are my people. It also means that sometimes Andy Reid has to be the first one out onto the field after a big play, clapping his hands and getting his team fired up because he's the cheerleader. He's in it every day with them. They're working on things. They're talking about executing, and then it happens out on the field, and he's the first one to run out and kind of cheerlead on their behalf. But sometimes you've got to close the meeting room doors. You've got to bring everybody in and say, we blew this. We've got to get better. This is what this should have looked like. A disciple maker has all of those in view. They're investing in individuals, championing, cheerleading, challenging. But that's not all. Continue on in verse 17. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and yet innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. A disciple-making heart offers protective encouragement. That's the second part here. Paul kind of turns a corner. It seems like his tone or his attitude shifts in a very almost distinct way from verse 16 to verse 17. I want to offer that there's not really a shift here. The heart is the same. The expression is different. Parents, you do this all the time. You can go from warm and snugly and cuddly with your kids to slapping their hand away from a hot burner in less than a second if you need to. Sometimes you're the cheerleader and the champion. Sometimes you're the protective guardian. The love is the same. It expresses itself differently. And that's what happens here in verse 17. Not only do you know the people that you love, you also protect the people that you love. And so what does that protective encouragement look like? Well, it looks like being a guardian. Paul knows where the pitfalls are. He's not shy about directing people away from them. In fact, he's intentional and emphatic about it at times. And so he offers three warnings in here. The first one comes in verse 17. Watch out for those who create divisions. Be aware. Know what's out there. He's laid out for them in stunning detail over the course of Romans the truth of the gospel. All the theological realities that play themselves out in the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinful humanity. And yet he also knows that there are those out there who would twist that, who would shift it into something a little bit different that ends up not being the gospel at all. And Paul says, watch out. Be aware of the fact that there are those who want to distort this message. Know the difference. Be able to spot it. Be able to refute it. In the words of Tom Nelson, Paul has no sympathy for theological sleepiness. We're supposed to know the truth of the gospel. And if we're discipling someone, we need to point out the errors, to be protective, to guard the truth of Jesus Christ so that someone else might stand firm in it. And then Paul says, Avoid them. That's the end of verse 17, the start of verse 18. That's striking. 
Because Paul has just spent several hundred words in chapters 14 and 15 talking about the need for us to overlook minor non-foundational differences with one another in order to maintain unity. Now he says, avoid some people. Well, who are we supposed to avoid versus who do we maintain unity with? We avoid those who in their teaching are so off base that their message is contradictory to the gospel. There's a line that we have to be aware of, a line that separates open-handed and to be held loosely kind of issues versus issues that are close-handed, matters of gospel truth. It's one thing to say, I prefer singing How Great Thou Art, or I prefer singing Here Again, a hymn versus a contemporary song. It's another thing to say, I think all people are generally good and sin isn't real. We have to know the difference. Where do we draw the line between what we should strive for unity on because it's a matter of opinion versus where we avoid because the truth of the gospel has been distorted? And then Paul also says to be wise. That comes in verse 19. We need to be wise about what is good. Know what is true. Cling to it. On the flip side, we're to be innocent about what is evil. We're to so distance ourselves from what isn't true that we're totally innocent about it. J.B. Phillips captures this well. He says, I want you to be experts in good and not even beginners in evil. These are protective encouragements. That's what it looks like to be a guardian. But we're also a guide. In the same way that a disciple-making heart is in it along with those that they're discipling, cheering them on, championing them, we're also walking through this life alongside them and the dangers are all around us. And so sometimes you just point out the air. Other times, you might have to guide someone away from it. You might have to get involved to the point where you say, look, this isn't true. This is a distortion of the truth of the gospel. We've got to move away from this. The image I want to give on this one is that of a park ranger. Sometimes you might show up to a state park or a national park and you're wanting to go for a hike and the ranger says, look, there's been a lot of snow melt recently. The river is running really high. Don't get in. The current is fast. He's guarding. He's offering the protective encouragement. Watch out. Avoid that. Be wise in what you do. Other times, you go with the guide on the hike, and he or she is there with you, directing you away from what's dangerous, keeping you on the right path, taking you to the destination that you want to go with. To be a disciple maker means that we're protective. It means that we're a guardian and a guide. And then the last three verses here, starting in 21. Timothy, my co-worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Last, the disciple-making heart has multiplication in view. You know the people you love. You protect the people you love. But you also have a vision for the people you love. You know what you want for them, the things that you desire to see true in their life. Look, Paul's never been to Rome. Romans 1.11 told us that he desires very strongly to go and see them. Romans 1 verse 8 said that the news of their faith is being reported all over the world. He's not ever been there, but look at the list of names. How in the world does he know all these people that he's never met, that he's never had any interaction with? Let me offer a possible explanation. Prisca and Aquila, more commonly we know them as Priscilla and Aquila. Paul met them in Corinth. 
He went there to plant a church. They were there because they had been expelled from Rome during the reign of Emperor Claudius. Not because they were Christian, but because Aquila was a Jew. Somewhere along the line, they became believers. And so when Paul arrives in Corinth, he's heard about them and he goes to meet them. He ends up living with them while he's ministering to the church there. He then moves on to Ephesus and they travel with him. At some point, they return to their home in Rome. At that point, they're likely in regular contact with Paul. They've spent years with him. He's ministered to them, discipled them, championed for them, cheerleaded for them, challenged them, guarded them, guided them. And so they want to remain in contact. And they begin to tell him of the people in the church in Rome now, individuals that they're ministering to and discipling, that they're championing, cheerleading, challenging, guarding, guiding. They tell him about they tell Paul about these individuals' faith and their work and their lives. And it's like Paul knows them and he loves them just as deeply as he would Prisca and Aquila. That's the vision. A disciple-making heart has multiplication in view. And so there's this new group of people around Paul. Timothy, we know who that is. We don't know who Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater are. He just says, they're my fellow countrymen. Tertius, he's just the one who wrote the letter. We don't know all these individuals, but they're a new group around Paul. And you can almost see what's probably going to happen in the future. In fact, we know what happens in the future because Timothy goes and leads a church. Paul's got multiplication in view. There's always another generation of believers that Paul is thinking about. He sees the masses through an individual and he builds up the individual to go and to meet the masses. That's what it is to disciple someone, to champion for them, to cheerlead for them, to challenge them, to guard and guide and to have multiplication in view. It was the faith of 12 people, 11 remaining disciples after Judas and Paul that God sovereignly used to bring you to faith a couple thousand years later on an entirely different continent. Their faithfulness to multiply faith generationally is what makes it so that we're here this morning. The image I want to give here is that of a strategist. Think of like a business consultant who comes in and sees everything that you've got going on in your place of work and says, this is the direction that you need to go. Multiplication in view. That's the direction that we're supposed to go. A disciple-making heart invests in individuals, offers protective encouragement, and has multiplication in view. And this isn't something that Paul just kind of cooked up on his own. This wasn't something that the New Testament just fumbled its way into. It's the image of Jesus. Christ is the ultimate example of this. The strategy is his. It's not Paul's. Jesus always saw individuals among the crowd. He invested in them. He was a champion for the disciples. They, were, they worked jobs that no one found appealing. They were kind of cast-offs in terms of like the, the Jewish education system. And Jesus rallies up 12 of them and he says, these are the guys that are going to change the world. These are the individuals that are going to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the group. He was their champion. He was also their cheerleader. 5,000 hungry people. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, you feed them. I'm here. I'll support you. I'm in this with you, but you do it. You can do it. 
Let's do this together. That's a cheerleader living life alongside them. But he was absolutely a challenger as well. All the teaching, all the coaching, all the times Jesus gave a parable and the disciples came back and said, uh, we don't understand what that means. And Jesus was like, sit down. And he explained what it was that he was trying to say. All of the challenge and the depth of his personal care and investment is unrivaled. He gave himself, literally, physically, both for people in general and for persons in specific. Investment in individuals. His heart toward his people was one of protective encouragement. He continually refers to himself as a shepherd, as the great shepherd. What's a shepherd do? Guards the sheep. Guides the sheep. He has confrontations with Pharisees. What's he saying? Don't listen to them. Watch out. They're wrong. Avoid what it is that they're saying. He gives strong statements about Satan and sin and temptation that the evil one came to steal, kill, and destroy, and that you should stay away. Watch out. Beware. Be wise. Be innocent. And he lived with multiplication in view. If you need an image of that, jot down John 17. Go back and read the entire chapter. As Jesus is praying for the disciples, he prays, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Multiplication, Matthew 28, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go, go and do with people what you've seen me do with you. The final marching orders he gave for the disciples was for them to mimic or copy or carry on what it is that they experienced with him. And we're to do the same thing. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to really flesh out what this looks like. What does the multiplication thing look like? These were kind of the bare bones of what it is to make disciples, to invest in individuals, to offer protective encouragement, to keep multiplication in view. We're going to expand that out over the next few weeks. And then at the end of February, we'll do the last three verses of Romans. And in March, we'll move our way into a new series. I want to close with this. Last week, we talked about being mission-driven, this idea that even though we have jobs and we have careers and roles and families and uh, that we're responsible for all those things, that the overarching umbrella of our lives should be this vision for the masses, this unreached, unengaged, unsaved mass of people, and that as gospel-centered individuals, our heart would break for them and we would long to share the gospel with them. That doesn't mean that everybody picks up what they're doing and goes into full-time ministry or packs everything up and goes to be a missionary. In fact, the opposite of that is the case. If you're called to those, then be obedient. But the reality is that we need faithful Christian men and women in all sectors of society working, doing good work that honors and glorifies the Lord, and discipling people in those places with an eye toward the masses and a heart for individuals, a longing to evangelize and share the gospel, and a lived out everyday investment in the individuals that are around them. And in that way, we build up the church. We raise people up to maturity in Christ. Some are called to go and share and to be evangelists. Others live here and they share the gospel in and around where they are and they live out the image of Christ with the people that they come into contact with. But both of those things are every Christian's responsibility. It's not one or the other. Oh, I, I like evangelism more. I like discipleship more. You may have a preference, but we're called to do both. We're called to be mission-driven, 
to take the gospel to those who have not heard it or have not received it. We're called to be disciple makers, to invest the truth of the gospel in those who might be a little bit less mature than us so that the church is built up and continually equipped and sent out. We're going to talk a lot about being disciple-making followers of Christ over the next few weeks, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Sound good? Awesome. Let's pray, and then we'll go. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, for the chance to gather and to worship God and to declare uh, the incredible truth, the second verse of how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. God, I pray that we would be driven by the image of Jesus Christ on the cross to share the gospel to the ends of the earth all of our days, no matter where it is that you call us or no matter what it is that we're doing. But I also pray that we would be driven by the image of Jesus Christ on the cross to invest our lives deeply in individuals, building up the church to maturity so that it might send the message of the gospel out. Lord, would we see evangelism and missions and discipleship as two complements that work together, God, and would we understand our call as followers of Jesus to be lifelong engaged in both. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go Chiefs. (laughs) Have a good week.